0: Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Thursday, January 11th. I'm Hannah Flohr. Two people are confirmed dead following a boating accident near Sitka Tuesday night. Three others survived. A helicopter from Air Station Sitka responded to the scene of an overturned vessel at 5.15 p.m. Tuesday near Chichikov Island, about 25 miles north of Sitka. Three people were safely recovered from the water by about 5.50 p.m., The Coast Guard cutters Douglas Denman and Kukui, along with HC 130 aircraft from Air Station Kodiak, also responded Tuesday night, tracked the vessel's drift, and searched the surrounding area for two people who remained missing. A dive rescue team from the Sika Fire Department, along with a state trooper, arrived early Wednesday afternoon and deployed an unmanned underwater drone. The bodies of two deceased victims were found in the cabin of the vessel. Recovery operations will begin once on-scene conditions improve. Initial weather in the area was reported at 8 to 10 knot winds with 9-foot seas and below freezing temperatures. The three people recovered from the water were flown to awaiting emergency medical personnel at the Sitka Airport. Southeast Alaska is prone to landslides. That's because of the area's heavy rain and the geology of the landscape. There have been deadly slides in Sitka, Haines, and Wrangell in the last decade. Now former Assembly member Jeff Mucci has organized a science talk in Petersburg about landslide warning systems. He says he's concerned about slides in the area.
1: I think Petersburg has the same amount of risk that Haynes, Sitka,
0: and Wrangell and other communities have. After a landslide in Sitka killed three people in 2015, the Sitka Sound Science Center developed a landslide warning system for the town. Lisa Bush is director of the nonprofit. She'll be in Petersburg next week to talk about that warning system and the science of landslides. Landslides are more likely in heavy rain, but the precise location of a slide is nearly impossible to predict because it's affected by geology, vegetation, and hydrology in the area. Bush says that top-down landslide warning systems run the risk of creating warning fatigue. That's when warnings warnings start to feel false to people because a slide didn't hit their particular area. The community starts to not trust the system. To address that, SICA's system is designed to be user-driven. An app reports risk levels and community members decide what level of risk they are comfortable with. The day after Petersburg science talk, Bush will lead a community work session to look at the possibility of Petersburg creating its own warning system. She says getting locals involved in the decision-making process is important to the success of the project. You gotta involve the community in developing these kind of warning systems. It's gotta reflect community values and community members' sense of risk, and you know where and what we want to um, have warning systems about. The Sitka Sound Science Center is now working with six tribal villages in southeast Alaska to create community-specific warning systems for those towns. The Science Talk in Petersburg is Wednesday, January 17th at 6.30 p.m. The work session is Thursday, January 18th from 11 a.m. until 12.30 p.m. Both will be held at the Petersburg Public Library and are open to the public. There's enough money in the state ferry system's budget to run seven ships this summer. But as Alaska Public Media's Eric Stone reports, it's unclear whether the Alaska Marine Highway System will have enough crew to operate them.
2: The state ferry system's Marine Director, Craig Tornga, says there's enough funding to put the Kennecott into service on cross-gulf routes connecting Whittier in southeast Alaska. That could allow the community of Yakutat to get its first port call since the summer of 2022. But in recent years, crew shortages have forced the ferry system to scale back its schedule. So, will there be enough deckhands, stewards, engineers, and captains to run all seven? Well, Torgus says the ferry system has made some progress on expanding the ranks, especially in entry-level positions.
3: But he says it's unclear whether that'll be enough to run a full schedule. We're challenged right now for crewing, uh, but thankfully, you know, we we have um, plans and hopeful uh, plans that we can operate a seventh vessel come the summers. Time uh, subject to the crewing, and thankfully the budget supports that.
2: For now, the Kennecott is scheduled to be laid up all summer, pending crew. I would leave a schedule very similar to this past summer. At a ferry operations board meeting on December first, Torringa said the ferry system added twenty-three crew members over four months, but Torringa says the ferry system is still struggling to hire the U.S. Coast Guard licensed mates and especially engineers.
3: Those are hard to get. Um, there, you have to get your sea time in additional to getting um, your certification. That's been a problem across the country. Last year, Washington state
2: ferries said it was facing unprecedented staff shortages. And it's not just passenger vessels. The U.S. Navy and Coast Guard are also short on sailors. Everybody's short. And
3: so we are all competing heavily.
2: Tornga says he needs about 30 licensed engineers, from oilers to chief engineers. He says one priority is training lower-level engine room workers to fill those vacancies.
3: We are trying to build a pipeline there. Uh, the entry position there is wipers. Uh, we have plenty of wipers, but we got to continue to provide training for them to set for their next certification, keep moving them up.
2: But it's a little trickier on the bridge. A brand-new mate or captain can't just roll in and start driving. Even if they're already licensed, it can take years for new crew members to get state-mandated credentials so they're qualified to navigate the fjords and narrows of Alaska's coast. Turnga says they're trying something a little different, running the pipeline in
3: reverse. Uh, we did uh, get an agreement for some uh, retirees to come back and, and help us through this stage, and that's been uh, very, very appreciated. Um, as they, they come with full pilotage, and they help us through some of the areas where we're short right now. As of the beginning of December, Tornga says
2: seven retirees, represented by the International Organization of Masters, Mates, and Pilots, had agreed to return to service. Tornga says a decision earlier this year to centralize payroll processing for ferry workers is also helping. That followed complaints from employees about errors in their
3: paychecks. That's not the holdup it was. Now, we haven't cleaned up the backlog. Um, and there's a bit of that, but uh, they're doing great work in trying to get through that at the same time as they're trying to do payroll. Torga says he's also
2: pushed to speed processing for new hires, especially for licensed positions. Torga says the ferry system wants to grow the number of Alaska high school students entering maritime careers.
3: Those are things that don't help us today, but they'll help us in the future, as we do find that uh, our local hires uh, tend to stay.
2: Representative Louise Stutes of Kodiak, a longtime advocate for the marine highway system, says crewing is a tough nut to crack.
1: It's just difficult when when um, in our industry here in the state, we're paying about 30 percent or 40 percent less than the private industry is paying. Stutes, a Republican,
2: says she's confident that ferry managers are doing the best they can under the circumstances. Senator Jesse Keel, a Democrat from Juneau, says he's pleased with the ferry system's efforts at creating a pipeline for the future.
1: I think that uh, leadership is right on in trying to promote from within and, and grow our own expertise in the fleet.
2: Lawmakers approved ferry funding through the end of 2024 during the last legislative session. Governor Mike Dunleavy's budget proposal, if approved, would provide a similar level of service in 2025. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Eric Stone.
0: All-purpose vehicles have been street legal in SICA for almost two years. Now riders want some of the initial restrictions rolled back, and they're getting support from the Assembly. Katherine Rose reports.
4: All-purpose vehicles, like ATVs and utility vehicles, were legalized for street use in Alaska in 2022. Some communities opted out of the new regulations, but eventually Sitka adopted the new state law after adding a few more local restrictions, like quiet hours and a local permitting process. Now, APV riders want some of those additional restrictions rolled back. Specifically, they want Sitka to make manufactured two-seat all-terrain vehicles street legal, and they want more exceptions for the city-mandated quiet hours. From midnight to 5 a.m., APVs generally aren't allowed on Sitka's streets. Mike Finn is the president of the Sitka All-Terrain Riders Group.
1: You can ride a bicycle, skateboard, motorcycle, car, truck, or whatever with zero curfews, but not if you're on an APV. Even without these two regulations, we are the highest regulated riding group in Sitka. Other communities and state law do not have these requirements of APV riders. And so tonight I'm asking each of you to vote in favor of this proposal to give APV riders a little more freedom on the Sitka roads.
4: Several other Sitkins voiced support for the code update, including Sheridan Bacon. Uh, I have personally seen how uh, much of a positive impact that this has had for our community, and I think it's really important for our sidewalks to be plowed in the snow time, and they've done a really great job of that, and it helps to... Keep our elderly community and our walkers and our bikers all safe on their route to and from. Assemblymember JJ Carlson said she'd support the ordinance, especially since they weren't going to repeal the quiet hours, just add another exception or two. It's not for just open hours for recreation at two
2: AM reading here or when traveling to and from the airport or ferry terminal for departures and arrivals without detours or stops or when snow plowing. And I think that's an important distinction, um, that it's not just uh, people um, going up and down the road for fun um, after midnight and, and before 5 a.m. And because of that careful language, um, I'm very much in favor
4: of this. Assembly member Tor Christensen, who sponsored the original proposal to make APVs street legal in Sitka, said the changes were a reasonable evolution of the ordinance.
1: I don't think we're going to have a uh, bunch of people going out there at 2 o'clock in the morning, so um, I don't have a problem with this.
4: While there wasn't any pushback at the assembly table, sponsor Chris Yested said that the ordinance was introduced at the Police and Fire Commission meeting first, but it failed to garner enough support. Yested said the sticking point was the allowance of a two-seater ATV, but most commissioners at the meeting were supportive of trimming back the curfew restrictions. Ultimately, the Assembly unanimously approved the updated code for APVs in Sitka. It will come before the group again for a final reading on
0: January 23rd. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Honey bees are not native to Alaska, and many beekeepers in the state don't try to keep bees alive through the long winter. They kill their bees when winter starts and order new bees when the weather warms. But one Anchorage beekeeper has learned how to help his colonies survive to see spring. Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra has more. I'm on the top of 49 State Brewings
5: Warehouse in Anchorage. Tim Huffman is showing me the bees he takes care of on the roof. They hired him to keep bees for sustainable honey for making beer.
1: I have eight hives going into winter here.
5: Each hive box is made of polystyrene, a condensed styrofoam material which retains heat much better than wood. And each stack of boxes is packed with foam insulation on all sides. Huffman points to a small hole at the base of one of the hives.
1: If it was a little warmer, even just five or six degrees warmer, we could see them crawling around in that little entrance. Uh, They're in there nice and toasty.
5: The insulation is one of the keys of getting these bees through the winter. The uh, The bees generate heat by vibrating their flight muscles. And insulated hives seal it in, keeping the colony warm. Huffman estimates Alaska has at least a 1,000 backyard or non-commercial beekeepers. Many keep colonies for beeswax and honey. Huffman says in some places, honeybees can survive cold winters in the wild, as long as they find an insulated space to live in, like a hollow in a tree. But he says Alaska's winters are too long.
1: Like North Dakota, Montana, Michigan, there's feral bees that successfully overwinter on their own in those climates. But they get a couple of things we don't get, they get occasional warm spells, and they also get early pollen and, and nectar much earlier than here.
5: Alaska beekeepers have to make sure their colonies have enough food to survive the winter. Huffman gives his colony extra sugar syrup in the fall so they can save it for the winter, and he puts sugar in their hives early in winter just in case they run out of food. He says learning how to keep his bees buzzing through the winter has been a lot of trial and error
1: people need to use modern gear and modern methods. I get my bees through the winter not because I'm some genius that figured out some trick. It's because I'm stubborn and I know how to use the internet.
5: Huffman tries to pass on that knowledge to as many people in Alaska as possible. He's involved in local beekeeping communities, and he runs a YouTube channel with tips for Alaska beekeepers. Anchorage beekeeper Christine Wilcox is one of Huffman's converts she'd struggled to keep bees alive for seven winters.
0: Not being able to overwinter was frustrating, and I tried very hard. I had wooden equipment, just like most people start. That was what was available.
5: In past years, she'd ended the winter with just a small clump of bees huddled together for warmth. But last winter, she learned about Huffman's methods. She switched to polystyrene hive boxes and insulated them. She loaded up her colonies with a lot of food, And when she opened the boxes last spring, things
0: looked different. When you look at the top, when you open them, if you see lots and lots of bees on the top of the frames, if you see lots of bees, that's a really good sign. You have good density. And they were very dense.
5: All three of her colonies survived through last winter.
0: I was dancing. (laughs) No, totally giddy. You know, it's just like when you realize that they've overwintered, I was elated. I'm attached to my bees in a weird way, but they're my buddies. And even though they'll sting me, but they're my buddies.
5: Back on the rooftop of 49 State Brewing, Huffman points at the hundreds of dead bees that dot the snow around the hive.
0: So
1: you can see there's dead bees. There's dead bees all winter long. So, you know, there are bees that are going to die. The most important thing is that there are way more bees alive on the inside than there are dead bees on the outside.
5: Huffman says as long as enough bees make it to spring, the colony can survive another year. In Anchorage, I'm Rachel Cassandra.
0: For KFSK, I'm Hannah Flohrer.